Hey, everybody. If you have ever been in a Haitian church in Northeastern or even Southern New England, you know the man I'm about to speak with. This brother has been preaching in Haitian churches for many, many years. He understands the culture. He understands the young people there. And he is the expert in this field. So I had to talk to him and understand and learn how the Haitian churches are engaging with youth and young adults. Are they being intentional? Are they empowering them and engaging with them at a high level? Or is there work to be done? I asked these difficult questions with Brother Jonathan, and he gives a dissertation after every question. So if you are interested in learning how the Haitian churches are engaging with youth and young adults, please listen to this episode. And even if you're in another culture and you want to learn from how the Haitian churches are failing or succeeding, listen to this episode because this is one of my favorite episodes. So check it out. All right, everybody, welcome to Youth Ministry and Mentorship 101. I have a very special guest today. This is one of the guys that I had on the top of my list to reach out to, Brother Jonathan from the Northeastern Conference. He is the Vice President of the Northeastern Conference um, Haitian uh, Federation, um, and he is also a young adult coordinator for the young, uh, Northeastern Conference. How are you doing today, brother? I'm blessed. How are you, Eric? I'm doing all right. Man, uh, let's get right into it. Could you give us a little introduction about yourself and why you're in ministry right now and what you're basically doing? Yeah, sure. Um, So currently, uh, well, I'm originally, I grew up in the Mid-Hudson SDA Church in Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, And from my young age, I was pretty active. Um, in the church, uh, active in ministry, I would say my church did a good job at giving young people responsibility. So I would say the church that I grew up in, it wasn't the traditional church where it was like the adults, you know, had total control and didn't want to give it up to the young people. I actually grew up in a church which, uh, especially for a, 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 a Haitian church, was pretty progressive. So from about the age of 14, 15, I was in charge of like a, um, a baptismal class at the church and Sabbath school and was assistant in pathfinders. And we had a lot of young people in charge of things and they let us and they trusted us um, to take control. So a lot of the people I grew up in my church, you know, we're not in the area as much people have moved all over the country, um, but wherever they've gone, they've sort of also taken on leadership roles. So, I would definitely say after God, it definitely helped coming from a church that was incredibly supportive of young people and gave the young people the reins to do our thing. So that definitely helped. And then I went away to school, Temple University for undergraduate studies in Philadelphia and was active uh, with a Bible study on campus. It was like a, just a regular Christian Bible study on campus. It was a public college, public school. So that really was big in terms of being exposed and dealing with other types of Christians and believers and people with different belief systems and helped me really have to know why I believe what I believe. After Philadelphia, I spent 
a few years in, in Dorchester, in Boston, Massachusetts. I worked at a school there called the Epiphany School. I did my master's at Boston College. And during that time, um, I was active helping out at the Brockton Temple, Seventh-day Adventist Church in Brockton and Temple Salem SDA Church. When I was in Philadelphia, I was, um, I helped start a Pathfinder Club at the, um, it was called Mount Nebo, but the name changed to Shekinah um, SDA Church in Philly and helped at the North Philadelphia Seventh-day Adventist Church as well and um, Allegheny East Conference. So after my time in Boston, I moved to New York um, and helped with the Bethany SDA Church in Brooklyn, New York, helped with their youth ministries. Uh, that's the church I was originally born in, um, even though I grew up in Mid-Hudson SDA Church. And then I spent some time as a youth pastor at the Maranatha SDA Church in Queens, New York. And then from 2016, I've uh, been serving as vice president for the Northeastern Conference, Franco Haitian Youth Federation. So, you know, I had the opportunity to uh, get to go a couple of different places and get to serve and work with youth ministries in different areas. And um, it's been great and been an amazing learning experience. Wow. Um, brother, that resume is a full resume, especially with youth ministry. You have been constantly working with churches and um, setting up youth ministries all over. Uh, you yeah. even mentioned, in Al and a lot of these churches are well-known churches. I mean, Brockton, um, yeah. you, you mentioned North Philly and Allegheny East. That is a big, well-known church mm -hmm. uh, where yeah. a lot of ministries are. So you have been very active. But what I really wanted to highlight what you just said was it all started when you were at Mid-Hudson and you were given the opportunity to be a leader. Um, yes, correct. That, I, that is just so profound because it's, I think here you are doing amazing work. And I think you, a lot of people look to you and see, man, this guy is really active and doing a lot of stuff. But I think we have to remember it starts with letting a 14 year old lead out a baptismal class. Yeah. Wow. So, um, and the reason I'm the reason I'm saying that is because I had this same similar experience. The, the first time I was allowed to preach at the pulpit, um, for, it wasn't uh, divine service, but it was for Sabbath school, but they gave me uh, five minutes and I was wow. 12 years old. I was 12 years oh, old. Oh, wow, wow. Yeah, so, that's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's like if, if you give young people a chance to lead and use their talents, I mean, they'll continually use them for the church. So, so, so brother, uh, we're talking about Haitian churches because that's where you are primarily leading in. Um, you, you've done a lot of work in Northeastern. Um, you have preached in a few Southern New England conference churches where I'm yeah. from. Um, yeah. can you give us like, what, how's the climate and the environment for young people in Haitian churches today? Wow, I mean that's that's a that's a, that's a loaded question, and I think it looks different depending on where you go um, and the church that you're at. So if I'm going to be honest, I'll give you an example. I found that okay. So right now with our Franco Haitian Youth Federation, one thing that's really helped us sort of build some momentum is sort of going back to a grassroots approach and mentality. So instead of looking at it like 
okay, what can the churches do for the Federation? Um, we sat together with our staff, you know, our president, Daniel Edmond, our vice president, Jessica Sinatus, and some other people. And we said, you know what, we're going to see how we can serve our churches. Because in 2019, 18, 17, et cetera, you know, there's something you can make in ministry you can't make. Like 20 years ago, when I was younger, 20 years ago, there wasn't social media. Most young people basically didn't have cell phones. So even if you really weren't in church for the right reason, church was a, a social, it was a place to socialize. Like if you didn't go to church, what were you going to do? You were going to mm-hmm. stay home and do what, you know? So even if you weren't really about church, it was a place to socialize, hang out with your friends. And it was almost like a community center, uh, a, a, a preserver of culture in the Haitian community. Um, but, you know, in today's day and age, young people can sit in their room all day on their phone and be thoroughly entertained. And so what we had to learn was first, don't make assumptions that young people are going to come to your program. 20 years ago, you can put a flyer and say, hey, we're having a big rally day or we're having a big youth day or program. And 20 years ago, because people didn't have anything to do as much, uh, you know, it was a thing to do. But now a kid can literally be on their, their phone and watch, listen to a sermon, listen to gospel music, you know, at, at the, you know, at the job of a, at the job of a hat. So. We had to sort of say, okay, let's go and sort of like the question that you just asked, what's the climate? We actually went to go check the climate on different churches. And what we found is that it varies from church to church. So Mm -hmm. in suburban areas, we found that you don't have, you don't have the same large numbers. So for example, there's a church in Long Island in NEC called Emmanuel, Emmanuel's in Long Island. They're very similar to my church upstate Mid Hudson where you know, we have a, it's a growing Haitian community, uh, but the community is not as established as, you know, a place like Brooklyn or Queens or Boston or like a Miami. So what happens is the church is fully dependent on the young people to come and, 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 and help and work and contribute. So like if I give an example of a church in, in, in the heart of Flatbush, Brooklyn or in Mattapan, Boston or uh, parts of Miami, there are people coming from Haiti all the time, and there are adults coming from Haiti, young people coming from Haiti. And so even if the church is not really progressive, a lot of times they still have a lot of people showing up to church. Yes. Um, and because it's so many people coming to that church, despite the fact that they've lost youth, like they just replenish people because of immigration. Mm-hmm. And so they're not, for them, they're like, right, we, can, we can try to find another adult to do this position. When you're in an area where there's not as many Haitians to replenish like that, when you're not in a, for lack of a better term, a gateway community, like if you're not, let's say you're like a Haitian church in, uh, I don't know, Ohio. If you're in Ohio, yeah, there might be some Haitians there, but it's not like out here in the East Coast amount of numbers in the gateway community. So because you don't have all those numbers, you have less room for error and you've got to use the few people that you have more. So, yeah. um, you know, so some of these churches I found have, sometimes I find that some of the suburban churches in New York State, so outside of New York City, tend to use their young people more, and it's because they have to. They don't have the convenience of, hey, every day someone is moving in from Haiti into the neighborhood and they can be planted to see. Pretty much they're like, we won't survive if our young people don't help. So, that's uh, something that I found for some churches. But the majority of churches, they do, I would say this for the majority of our Haitian churches, 
the plum that I found. I can't speak for everywhere. I can speak a little bit. I can speak for New York. I can speak a little bit for what I've seen in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, I can't speak too, too much for like Florida, but for New York, um, right now, the Haitians in terms, right now, youth are active, but it doesn't necessarily mean the whole church is active. And it, it differs from church to church. Mm. Some churches are incredibly old school and they're more uh, a French service. They're more Frenchy, like they speak French. They're more old school. They might not want a drum set in the church. And you have some churches that are um, more, they speak more Creole, you know, they, you know, um, might have more drums. They might have more lively type of service. So it depends from church to church. But what I found is that when there was a, a there was a mass exodus of a lot of Haitian youth who left, for example, in New York, you have churches that are high percentage of Haitian Americans, like Kingsborough Temple in Brooklyn, a church called Bethany SDA in uh, Long Island, New York. In Boston area, I know Cambridge SDA has a lot of Haitian Americans. In Southern New England Conference, I know Oak Street Church in Brockton has a lot of Haitian Americans in that church. Um, when I went to, I was in Miami preaching last year, and there was a church I was at called Tabernacle. The pastor was an uh, African-American man, and he told me 50% of his church is Haitian and Haitian American. And so what I found is that uh, even when Haitian youth do leave the Haitian church at times, they don't, always, they don't really leave the church altogether. They might leave the Haitian church and they'll attend an English-speaking congregation and will be a major asset to that congregation. But I do think what Haitian churches have established, because uh, I do recognize, the, the adults I feel have recognized that they've lost a lot of young people. Sometimes, unfortunately, it's, they feel it with the money. So a youth will grow up in the church and they'll realize, okay, you know, this kid grew up in our church, the kid has become a professional, but the kid doesn't give their tithing and offering to our church. And they recognize that we sort of invested in our kids, but our kids don't stick around. What can we do? So I can speak for at least Northeastern Conference in the New York area. Almost every single church has a youth Sabbath every month. I did not, I thought this was going up in the Asian church. And my church did that for years. Mid-Hudson for years. Third Saturday was always youth day since the early 2000s. But a lot of churches have picked up on it. So like a lot of Haitian churches, Third Sabbath, they realize we've got to do something for these young people. And so Haitian churches have made some adjustments there's still a lot of issues though sometimes lack of education um old school ways do hurt the churches but there are churches that are trying so i can say like if i'm speaking in new york i know for a while hebron tried to hide a youth pastor for a little bit one of our members of our staff was a youth pastor at hebron i was a youth pastor at maranatha the shiloh sda church in stanford now has a separate english service the sinai sda church in spring valley new york now has a uh, whole separate English service as well. Um, uh, I know Mid-Hudson has third Sabbath youth days. Um, Bethany SDA, I think they have four, and Brooklyn has four Sabbath youth days. Maranatha SDA in Queens has four Sabbath youth days. I don't know what Baraka and Queens are doing now, but they have youth days. There's Carrington Queens youth days. Uh, there's Herman SDA in Brooklyn, which is a combination now of four former Haitian churches. Every second Sabbath, they have their youth days. So I can say that there are at least there's steps, there's still a long, long way to go, though, a very long way to go. But the fact that they have youth days, if you go to most English churches, they have like two, three youth days a year. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm like, how come they only have like two or three youth days a year? But I realized 
or language is not a, so much an issue. The language barrier is not an issue in the churches. But I was saying in the Haitian churches, the concept of the youth day on third Sabbath, and some churches do give some young people uh, responsibilities and give them things to do. So I would say, I guess to sort of summarize the question, I would say the climate in New York is they're trying at times, you know, by giving them the third Sabbath and youth days. And it's a step in the right direction, but it's not the answer to everything. Um, I do think, you know, youth day is good, but sometimes does your, if you have a youth day for them, but are the young people really in control? Um, sometimes it's hard to get a good speaker, a speaker that can speak their language, but also give the adult something also, um, someone who can be relevant for them and giving them a space to ask questions. So youth day is good, but Young people, I don't believe that people are really just one between the 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. service. What happens before and after that? So there's more that we can do with our, our Sabbath school and our afternoon programs and our weeks and the mentorship. And so I think Haitian churches, a lot of them are trying. But I will say this, they are, the youth are very, and they're very active and ambitious. So, so even when their churches are not, um, Let's say maybe the church might not be thriving, but they're not afraid to plan and put things together. Mm. So with our federation, we found a lot of leaders and talented people who are willing to say, hey, I want to put this together. I want to do that together. All right. Uh, can we put this? Can we do this? Can we organize this? Can we collaborate? So with our federation, we've seen a lot of talent in our churches. And it's not just in one area. It's not just, you know, one area. It's in a lot of different areas. And so great ideas are coming out of our community and i would say because our churches don't always meet our needs totally young people sort of there are some young people in our community that find ways to bridge that gap mm. so they'll say you know um for example we do a basketball tournament every april now a lot of our churches don't have the money to sponsor like an active sports team in a, in a conference league so it's like, hey, let's do something that's affordable that works and bring everybody together. And um, when we every year when you have a tournament, you're looking at all the people that come together to put it together, and you're just like, wow, you know, you guys came together and put something beautiful together. When we put our, we do these things called Unity Days in different regions every month before that lead up to our main rally day where we bring all our young people together, and we get different youth to do different things. We'll ask one church to do like a skit for the children's story. We'll ask one church to do uh, something creative maybe for afternoon or whatever. And when you give them something new, they step up to the plate. So although I think um, we have a long way to go, our young people, believe it or not, they have talent. And if you give them something to do, they'll do it. And even when they do leave the Haitian church, a lot of them just go to English speaking churches and they thrive in those churches as well. So that's what I could say for New York. For Boston, when I was in Boston, I think it depends. Each church has its era, this time where they might be thriving, where they might be struggling. It all depends. It was a, there was a time where I remember there was a lot of the young Haitian youth were going to Oak Street Church in the Brockton area, right? But a lot of them stuck around and came back to Brockton to help out. Um, so it, it all depends. And when I look at um, Fija, which is in Southeastern Conference, their Haitian Federation, I think they're similar to us in the sense that week to week, you never know what you're going to get out of a service. Uh -huh. But when they're allowed to take control of a program, they thrive. Mm -hmm. So I think our young people use things like federations and things like that um, to, to 
carry out and do the things that they might not be able to do in their church. So I think it's good preparation for leadership for them. But a lot of times what happens is they, they'll do it now in an English speaking congregation, which is okay. As long as you're doing it, you know, for the Lord. So it's, it's a tough question. It's a, it's a great question. It's, just, it's a great question you ask and a loaded question. But I think it looks different from church to church and from also region to region. Each area has its own identity and each church has its own identity. Brother, I asked about the climate and you gave the answer like a true meteorologist. You gave the <laughs> temperature, the uh, the forecast. You gave you get you you. I mean, you did it so awesomely. This is the reason I needed to talk to you, brother. This is uh, that was a beautiful answer. I mean, you can tell that you have been to all these churches and you've seen it. You've seen it. You've interacted. You've spoken yeah. with the youth leaders and you you know what's going on. Um, one thing I want to add upon to what you said is and something I've been talking a lot on this podcast you said that when they go to an English uh an English speaking church and they thrive there's nothing wrong with that (laughs) yes I I think uh we have to let our churches know that if that happens we shouldn't be upset we should be like okay correct they let them let (laughs) them thrive yeah we sh- it's not about you know competition with other churches and it's not about right. um selfishness that's saying okay they were brought up in our church so we should be benefiting from their tithe and their service not ne- not necessarily i mean if they're still in the church you've done your job you know that's it that's it yeah let them yep. let them serve elsewhere and and plant their sp- you know um like the bible says the the, the farmer doesn't care where the seed lands because the, the more seed lands, the more he has a chance for a harvest. So that's right. Let, that's right. That's a great example. Yeah. Let your children grow up and go to other churches. Let them bring your experience and what you've taught them in your church to other places. And Correct. that's a great thing. It's the, the, the tough thing is when they leave the church and they leave the church period. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, so, wow, brother, <laughs> that that was a great answer, uh, and it, it it's making me think. One thing I want to also ask about your answer to the climate is, what do you think about intentionality? Because I think what you said was there's young people that are active in some churches, but it's because they're in the suburban areas, they're not a gay mm-hmm. community, and mm-hmm. See, because their numbers are not refilling like a big church in a gateway community, they have no choice but to use the. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What do you think about that? It's, it, do you think that's the way we should be thinking, though? Like, should Should we just be using young people because we have no choice but to use them, or should we be more mm-hmm. intentional? In mm-hmm. you know, that that's, no, that's a great point. That's what I'm. No, that's, that- that's a great point you bring up. And, and, and I guess it's tricky because it's, all right, I'll give you an example, right? I, was, I spent this week, I spent the past week, I was speaking for the Greater New York Franco Haitian Camp Meeting um, last week. And I got to spend a lot of time with the Greater New York Conference Youth Director, Pastor Ariel Menzueta, 
and we had amazing conversations, you know, um, be able to pick each other's brains a lot. And it was really great conversation. And he had mentioned that he, he did a, uh, he did a mission trip to Haiti. Uh, I, I forgot when it was. And what he said in terms of what he saw in his mission trip is almost similar to what I've seen, like I said, in, in the United States with some suburban churches who have no choice but to use youth more than as churches and gateway communities. He went to some area, and what Haitians would say, under the province, out the outskirts in the countryside. And, you know, when you think about the big cities in Haiti, big cities in Haiti are like Port-au-Prince, and the Port-au-Prince metro area, there's like Delma, Pétionville, Carrefour, these areas. I think the Haitian, the Haitian um, uh, uh, seminary is in that area, and south of the city of Port-au-Prince. It's an area with a lot of churches and a lot of people. And so those churches have access to so many more people that it's easier for them to pick an elder. Like they don't have to worry. They're not thinking about picking an elder because they have so many older men which they can choose from in their population, you know, available to them. Whereas he went to the countryside and there was a guy he knows who was doing mission work out there and he went to help. And they started laying the foundation by meeting the needs of the people in the community. Um, and when he came back later, the, a new church had started in that region. And Pastor Manzuelo told me that when he went there, the church was, the elders were all 21-year-old men, 20, 22, on their like early 20s. And he was like, I've never seen this in my life. Mm-hmm. And the reason why, it, it's pretty much what you just said. It wasn't, I can't say it was intentional, um, but it was what had to happen because there was, the older men weren't really in that community. The older people in the community was younger people who had accepted the message. And because um, there was younger people who had accepted the message, young people took control. And he was like the elders and everybody was in their early 20s. And he was, again, was it intentional? I don't think it was intentional. But again, it was a similar situation. They didn't have a large pool to choose from. So it was like, all right, let's make the most of what we have. I think what happens is it becomes difficult now when you have a large pool to choose from. It's almost like, let's say you have a couple of people that you can choose for an elder, you know, mm-hmm. you might have men and women in your church that you find to be qualified. Let's say you have five people in their fifties, five people in their forties, five people in their thirties, five people in their twenties. Naturally you say, like, ah, right, let's go for the older one. The older one has more experience. The older one might have this, the older one might have that. And I think people are sort of, when you have options, quote unquote, it's like, well, we got time. Like the older person waited their dues, you know, when they were in their twenties, they couldn't do it. When they were in their thirties, maybe they were starting to do something. So let them do their thing. And the guys that's in their twenties now, when they get older, we'll let them do their thing. They'll have their time. So I think people don't have a sense of urgency. And not knowing that, listen, you can have the older person, but you can have the younger person as well. The younger person, like the apostle John, John is the youngest of the disciples. And when you read John's gospel, you can see he's young. Like he's not so, he spends the most time looking at personal interactions with Jesus. Yes. So uh, in John 2, you know, you see, uh, um, you see Jesus is dealing with the people in the temple. In John 3, you see Jesus and, Nica, and Nicodemus. You know, you see um, stories with the man in the pool of Bethesda. Like John, like, Anybody who says, like, John has a different approach because he's younger. He's like a different generation. And so Jesus needed all these guys. He needed guys that were younger. Uh, but Luke was a physician. And when you read Luke's gospel, 
Luke pays attention to detail more so. When you look yes. at Matthew, Matthew does a good job of the bird's eye view and seems to be somewhat pretty balanced, you know, in some ways. So it's, it's you need everybody. So I think we're, it's, we, I agree that, that I don't think all churches are intentional. Uh, I think they should be intentional, but I also think they shouldn't be extreme in a sense that, all right, let's just have an overhaul and only put young guys too. I think we need young and old. I think we need both, and both have something to bring to the table. Examples of Paul and Timothy, you know, it's, you know, you know, Paul, Paul calls Timothy his son. Mm -hmm. Then Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. But in Romans 16, we see Paul calls finally at the end, for the end, he calls Paul, I mean, Timothy, his co-laborer. So he's like, yeah, you were younger than me, but you worked your way up. We worked together. And now, man, you work, we're co-laborers. We're both learning from each other. So I think we need both. But I do think the majority of churches aren't always intentional. All right, everybody, we'll get back to the interview with Jonathan in just a second. I just want to remind everyone that this Saturday, September 21st, is the Let's Talk conference that will be held at Brockton Temple. If you haven't listened to the episode where I speak with Sister Obel of Save Soul Ministries, then you're missing out. Just listen to it after this episode because it is a blessing and it leads to a conversation we need to be having, which is about mental health, which is what the Let's Talk conference will be talking about. I also just want to say to everyone who's listening, feel free to go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or review. Feel free to go and find my link tree either on Instagram or Facebook and reach out to me. Any suggestions or people that you would like to have on the podcast, let me know. And we will work together to help this ministry grow and engage and empower youth and young adults. And I just want to lastly say, if you have any youth and young adults in your church, remind them that serving God is a wonderful thing to do. Empower them and encourage them. Let them know that fulfilling God's purpose for them will be a blessing to them. All right, so thank you for listening. And remember, here at Youth Ministry and Mentorship 101, we always say youth ministry isn't just a stepping stone to ministry. Youth ministry is ministry, period. Now let's get back to the interview. I'll give you an example. When I came to uh, I came to New York, I was working with Bethany SDA Church when I first came back to New York from Boston. And we had a thing called Hour of Power every Friday night. It was a really good vessels we were having together. Um, Maranatha at the time in Queens, New York, was looking, they were dealing with Maranatha. Um, I would say compared to your average SDA church, the history of Maranatha, Maranatha historically has been for Haitian standards a white-collar church. Uh, historically, when Haitians settled in um, New York back in the day, usually your Haitians that settled in Queens, were a little more well-to-do than your Haitians that were settled in Brooklyn. Um, you know, so uh, the ones in Queens would, and this is Maranatha is the second oldest Haitian church in America from what I know. They just celebrated 50 years. So Hebron started in 1956, the oldest Haitian church in America. Maranatha started in 1969. Maranatha is a result of political history in Haiti. In 1957, Haiti had Papa Doka, Francois Duvalier, the dictator, take over. And usually when dictators take over, they're not fond of the educated elite and journalists and things like that. And so he gave a lot of those people problems. And those educated, 
there was a little bit somewhat of a brain drain. The same thing happened in Cuba under Fidel Castro. So you would have sometimes the upper upper middle class, they're not really too fond of dictators. And, you know, to save their lives, they flee. And so those who came to Queens during that time, um, they were educated, they had high literacy levels, they had decent professions. And I believe that has even affected Maranatha to this day. You know, it's a church where the young people are incredibly ambitious. I mean, they have young people who are doctors and engineers and lawyers and, you know, I mean, you know, but, you know, uh, when I was invited to work there as a youth pastor, I think they recognize that we have a lot of talented young people and some of them have stayed, some of them have not stayed. Um, so there, I guess the solution was more, okay, let's bring in a youth pastor who's going to work with them. Um, Hebron also did the same thing. I know Shiloh and Stanford is doing it. Sinai SDA in Spring Valley is doing it as we speak. They have a youth pastor. So I think they've been intentional where they've had youth pastors in. The, I don't think the youth pastors are helpful, but all the youth pastors are totally the answer alone. Um, and so Sinai now has a separate English service period for their young people. So a lot of the kids, that, uh, a lot of you at Sinai, um, you know, they, they're a church, they grew up in it, but it's not that there's other options. They can go to church um, in, in northern New Jersey, which is nearby. They can go to church in Westchester County, um, the Mount Vernon SDA church. I think they had options. And I think the church giving them an English service has really been really beneficial for them mm-hmm. and really helped them, um, you know, take back control and have a role to play in their church. So I think some churches have been intentional. Um, but I do think they can be a little better in, in their intentions. So the idea of bringing a youth pastor is good. The idea of having an English service is, I think, sometimes even better than sometimes, although you do want to, there's nothing wrong with also wanting to retain parts of your culture. Um, but I do think uh, they don't know how. I think Haitian churches don't know how. I don't think they mean harm all the time. Um, you know, in every church you'll find people that are converted and people that aren't converted. A lot of people that will sit in the church board and and will pass try to pass uh, policies, for lack of a better term, that will hurt the church. And you have people that will sit in the church board and really fight for the policies that will help the church. But I do think even those that have good intentions for youth ministry, um, those who have good intentions for youth ministry, I would even say they don't understand. It's more than a youth pastor is helpful, but it's also creating a space where young people can ask. Um, tough questions, creating maybe mentor programs. So there's a church in Greater New York Conference that Pastor Manzueta was telling me, and I forgot the name of that church, but he said the church has a mentorship program where young people get to shadow the church clerk, the church, um, the treasurer, the church, the wow. deacon, they get to shadow them for a month and really help them and take them under their wing. And so every month, you don't just shadow one person for like a year, but you'll get a month to work with that department. And I think things like that do help. I know at my, I know at Mid Hudson, I had left by then. I was in college by then, but I do remember they had a thing where every Wednesday a different department of the church. And again, because it's, it's a smaller area, I would say Mid Hudson, on paper, on paper, Mid Hudson probably has 150 members on paper. Mm-hmm. So it's not the smallest church, you know, but it's also not a big five, six, seven hundred member church. What they would do, and again, if there's 150 on paper, not 150 show up every service, so it's always right. less than that. That's right, yeah. And so what they yeah. would do is they would stretch it out where 
you know, you have 52 Wednesday night prayer meetings in a year. That's a lot. And Mid Hudson always shared a pastor. Um, we always shared pastors. We never had a pastor to themselves. Mm-hmm. So I think what they were able to do was they rotated um, different departments for Wednesday night. So uh, family life, you'll do, you'll be in charge of Wednesday night prayer for the first Wednesday of the month. Yeah. Um, music department, you'll do the second one. Um, women's ministry third, men's ministry fourth, youth, whatever. And what it did was it forced them to have to find, okay, who can maybe preach? Who can maybe do this? Who can do that? When I was in North Philadelphia SDA church, I remember they had made different departments would team up with AY, AY ministry. So they were like, okay, how can we change things up? So, okay, this week will be this department, men's ministry in AY. Next week, women's ministry in AY or in a youth. So just find it. They were intentional about it. I think you need to be intentional. And if you're nervous about something being too big for the young people, start small. Like, like you said, you didn't start preaching in a, you started a, a sermon in Sabbath school at 12 years old. That's they didn't throw you, you know, right away into the fire right away or the belly of the beast right away. So there's so many spaces that we can really give young people the chance to do something. You're right. You can do it. Maybe give them something to do a Saturday morning. Maybe Saturday afternoon. Maybe a Wednesday, um, a Wednesday night program. Maybe a Friday night vespers. Um, I think you have a chance. Maybe you have a church pianist. Let a young person get to play the piano on a Wednesday night. Work with them. There's so many places where we can be intentional and giving young people a place to start that's not high pressure for them. So they won't totally be like, okay, I'm overwhelmed. There's a lot. Some young people, it's not a big deal. Sometimes they're so young, the moment is big, but it's over their head. They don't even know how big the moment is and they seize the moment. But some of them, they do get overwhelmed. But I think there's a lot of places for us to give them a chance to be intentional. Like, yeah, you might not throw them, you know, throw them into the belly of the beast on a Sabbath morning, but there's times to give them a chance. But I can't, I do think church, there are some of our churches are starting to be intentional. They are starting to be intentional. They're giving young people things to do. I can't say all of them are. Some of them think it's a quick fix. They're like, all right, we'll have a youth day. We'll bring in a speaker that speaks English. Mm. Boom, that's your answer. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that's <laughs> one day out of 30 days in a month, and it's not enough you know so yes i i would say yeah we're not some are intentional some are not um and even with the ones who are intentional it's not their fault they don't really know where to start they're so used to how it was in haiti the adults like yes. when i was in haiti like, here's the thing in haiti you didn't have the distractions that you have here in america in haiti you can't even depend on the government for anything the government you know like i mean corrupt the american government's corrupt you know every government is not perfect but in Haiti, you really feel directly corrupt policies. Like, you know, whatever, you know, um, whoever the president of the United States, whether it be Donald Trump or, or, or Barack Obama or George Bush or Bill Clinton, I still, by God's grace, have my job. I still have food to eat every day. I still have running water. I still have electricity. Whereas some places like Haiti, like, you feel one bad decision from the government means the difference of you eating today and not eating tomorrow. And so when you can't depend on your government, when there's 50% unemployment in Haiti, people who graduate um, out of the college system in Haiti, um, they'll have, they'll finish their high school and their college and there's no job for them. Haiti doesn't have a system of meritocracy, you know, uh, and Haiti is like you get a job or you get into medical school or law school based off who you know. 
So you have a lot of talented people in Haiti who have skills and can't get a job, who, you know, have all these stuff. And then obviously in Haiti, is, you know, uh, you know, in deals, as a result of the slave trade, you know, they brought some things over from West Africa, types, you know, uh, you know, with, with, with voodoo and witchcraft and things like that, where Haitians are aware, fully aware that there's a good and evil battle. Yes. They, they're fully aware, like Haitians, especially in Haiti, where these things are in your face more. Um, so as a result, there's more urgency um, in Haiti to to go to church. There's more urgency to go to church. My dad said when he was growing up in Haiti, he remembers like a lot of guys, they were smart, but they didn't have a job. So church was something to pass, but they knew they can go to church and find something to eat. They knew they can go to church and have a good conversation with their friends. They knew they can go to church and get some encouragement. Whereas, you know, and here it's just like, first of all, they don't go to church. It's different. So our parents' generation in Haiti, it took less for them to have to go to church. And they had less questions to ask. They were more like, well, this is, this is where I get my hope from. This is where I get my encouragement from because I can't trust the government. I can't trust anything. Like, I, there's nothing to depend on but God. Whereas in America, man, we live in a life out here. Like, no, I don't want to dis- I don't want to undermine poverty in America. There are people in America who are poor and are feeling it. Yes. Um, they are feeling poverty, but you have a better chance getting out of poverty in the United States than in Haiti. If someone who's poor in the United States is better than middle class in in in, in Haiti, and so our parents. They had that mindset and they come to this country and they're like, why don't you guys into church? And we're like, well, we don't need this. We don't, we're not praying for immigration papers. We're not praying about like, or they would say, Lugawu or things tied to, you know, uh, uh, animism and things like that. Uh, or, yeah, we're not praying like, these are things we don't fear these things. We don't, you know, so we have less of an urgency. It's like, well, I want to go have, you know, Saturday morning brunch on a rooftop. Or I want to go travel to like, you know, uh, Santorini, Greece, or to Rome. It is like we have so much more things and we have less of an urgency. And our parents, because they have less of that urgency, they don't understand that Christianity in America, there has to be a why to it. There has to be a a how. And so, you know, yeah, a purpose. So for them, it's very fear-based, very formulaic. Uh, back in Haiti, not I don't I don't want to say for all of them. I don't want to say for all of them, but in general, that's the idea that you get. It's like, well, if you don't wake up at time and you don't do this and you don't do that, you're not going to make God happy, and the devil's going to this and the devil's going to that. So it's very much, hey, don't do this because this. They're like, don't put nail polish on because of this. Don't wear braids or when things that are just like, I'm yes. in America, and guess what? People might have braids, and guess what? It has nothing to do with their personality. Uh, they're not having nightmares because they have braids. They're not possessed because they put on nail polish or something. You know, so our parents see one thing and we're just like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> you're, the world that you come from, the thing that made you, your why to Christianity is not exactly the same why that I would have. Yes. And so I think that's what makes it tough. It's hard to be intentional and know how to give the young people what they want when your whole approach, their whole approach from our approach, their exposure to different thought processes with ours is so much different. So yes. even though they mean well and they have intentionality, I think they struggle with figuring out, okay, how do we do this? What can we be intentional about? How do we do this? Wow. 
Wow. Great insight. I, I, it, it, it was very interesting to hear that, especially um, the, I, 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 that's something I've always thought about how it it was, you know, I, you hear, well, that's not how we did it back in Haiti and, mm-hmm. and stuff yep. like that. Um, yep. And I remember being in boards, uh, board meeting, even as a young person, and a lot of members would be like, how come we can't get, you know, money from the mission and we're like uh this is north american division we don't have missions here Um, (laughs) things like that so uh, yeah it's it's not only that that urgency that they felt you know to go to church but it's also that culture of um there's not an outside culture that they're witnessing that's acting differently from what they're being raised in you know we're we're we were raised not only to be, you know, like Haitian culture, but we're also seeing something different on our television screens. We're seeing something yeah. when we go to our school. And then when the parents give that, when that parent that wants to be a nice parent and actually give us freedom to go over our friend's house who mm-hmm. may be Caucasian or African-American um, uh, in America. And then we hear that young person, our friend in school, talk back to their parents. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're we're starting to see there's a different world that we're that outside from our house. Uh, that we're so you know, it it comes to a point where these things you know have to. Um, what I say is these things have to be discussed. I think we what we need more is that open conversation about these intergenerational differences and how have more communication between each other because I, I here's the here's an example that i will use brother um mm-hmm. when i hear an older generation talk about this is how it was in haiti this is how it was for us they they usually tend to say it in a way to try to guilt us to follow and be compliant in their sense of how we should be um, yeah. Because usually, what I when I hear this is how it was for us in Haiti, it's also tied to look at how much I sacrificed so that yeah. you can be in America and you can have yeah. all these wonderful, great things. And yeah. and I a, a few years ago, I heard um, uh, somebody from a college who was a a recruiter. Uh, he said something very interesting. He was talking to actually a Haitian parent. And he was saying something like that. He was saying, he was like, man, I don't understand why these kids are asking for Air Jordans, the sneakers that cost $120. They should be so grateful that they have sneakers, period. Because when I was in Haiti, I would be so grateful to have a shoes on my feet. And then um, this man who was the same age or even older, but he was from America, he said, how are you going to tell a young person um, or guilt them to feel it, uh, for wanting things that they see everybody in their classroom has, and how yeah. can you and how can you tell them that they are privileged when they are lacking what they see their classmates having? So, if, if they go to class and all their classmates have iPads and Air Jordans on their feet, and then they just have a pen and a pad, and yeah. um. <laughs> Uh, the twenty dollar uh, Payless sneakers, yeah, and and their parents are saying, "Go off and be happy because in Haiti, this is what. If I had this in Haiti, I'd be I'd be uh, shouting from the rooftops, praising the Lord." 
And then they're just looking around at their surroundings and they're saying, wait a second. And that's, that's something I think um, the older generation should hear from us because I, here's my, here's the last point I'll, before I give another question to you, brother, is I don't think we have it necessarily easier than yep. our, I agree. our um, parents had it. We just have something that's different. We were, we're growing up in a different time and we have different stresses for us. Um, for them, their stress was making sure, having money to eat and filling yep. their belly. Our stress is we better have good grades. We better, yeah. we, we, we better pay off our student loans. We better find, yeah. we f- better find a job. Yeah, we're blessed, but there's different stresses that we're going through. Um, and it's exhibiting in different ways. Like, um, uh, they they would go hungry. We can get depressed. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Exactly. So exactly. You know, we're dealing with depression. We're dealing with anxiety. We're dealing with yes. Correct. That's uh, you know, we were always told about church um, and church. Don't fall for peer pressure. Don't fall for peer pressure. But what happens with church pressure? You know. Yeah. That yeah. that young lady who is um actually doing well in school but now after gets that degree and then gets that master's so when are you getting married you know yeah that's <laughs> these right yeah these kinds of things so i that's what i think um is, is that's a great point that's a great and, point and i just think brother that if we have those conversations um that two-way street and that will benefit us and which brings me to my next point about mentorship um how do you see mentorship, real mentorship, like genuine mentorship, how that could um, really change the landscape in churches and especially Haitian churches? I mean, that's a big thing. I mean, I'll share this story that I share. I've shared it multiple times when I preach in a lot of churches. I mean, and I share it a lot when I preach in Haitian churches. Um, I just shared it last week at the camp. I shared it at a church called Salem in New Jersey the other day. Um, my dad was, you know, my dad was not born and he wasn't born in the SDA church, right? My dad, he had a tough life when he was three months, when he was three months, his, his father had abandoned his family in Haiti. And when he was 16, his mother had died. So when he was about 16, he went to move in with his uncle who was well to do one of his mother's brothers. And my dad, uh, was invited to a Bible study when he was about 18 years old. He went to the Bible study. Um, and the person at the Bible study went to, uh, one of the, uh, one of the bigger Haitian churches in Port-au-Prince called Tump. And my dad went to the, 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 went to the church and, um, he remembers, you know, he didn't have any family in the church. You know, he was a young guy, 18, 19 years old. And he had no mom, no dad, and didn't know anybody in the church. You know, it was, I mean, he was open to the message, but he was like, man, I don't know where to go from here. And the first elder of that church, who was, um, it was a big church. The first elder went out of his way to take care of my dad. Like, I don't know how far he lived apart from, you know, my dad's family. You know, Haitians like making grill with pork, right? Or make food with crab and shrimp and lobster. Not that my dad is not, uh, not that he's at Venice, he doesn't eat that stuff anymore. So the elder took my dad under his wings and said, hey, you need food to eat, come to my house and eat. And my dad would go to his house and be able to get food if he needed food. Uh, since they didn't cook that way in this house. 
he would take my dad with him when he made when he did visits to different people and praying at different people's houses and checking on people. He would bring my dad with him. And my dad said, after God, if it wasn't for that first elder, he said he would have never stayed in the church. It was no, he had no mom. He had no dad. He was a young guy. He could have been in the streets doing whatever he wanted to do. And he was like, this elder took me under his wings. You know, he saw I didn't have family in the church. He saw I was the only, you know, I was by myself. And he treated me like his own son. And he, not just what he said, but what the elder did. Uh, the elder gave a good example in, in, in how he lived. He showed him how to do things. We'd go to visit people's house and pray and stuff like that. One time he might make my dad pray. He'd be like, all right, we'll say, Kwaku, pray. The next few, maybe a few months later, he'd go to my dad's comfortable. He'll say, Kwaku, uh, you'll read the text. Read a, read a scripture. And next time he'll say, Kwaku, share a quick thought with us, a quick five-minute thought. And so he would give him things to do, and it trained my, like pretty much just give him my dad training. You know, like Jesus did with the disciples. He gave them on-the-fly training. Jesus is a perfect example of mentorship. When Peter, when Peter denies Jesus three times, you know, Ellen White says in education that if Peter, if Jesus looked at Peter with the look of disgust, Peter would have taken the same route as Judas and killed himself. Wow. But Jesus, under, yeah, Jesus understood that Peter is human and he messes up. And so Jesus, understanding that, uh, and he understood that Peter is human, he gave Peter a chance. And in John 21, Jesus, you know, after Jesus resurrects from the grave, he yes, meets with his yes. disciples one more time by the sea. They're having like a little breakfast. And he only invites, I believe, seven or eight, I think seven of them. And the first name, the first invitation on the list is Peter. Peter messes up. Peter's the one that, uh, 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 Peter's the one that did Jesus dirty. But Jesus was the one that reached out to Peter, even though Peter disrespected him and played him. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Mm. Peter denies him three times. Jesus gives him, restores him, gives him three times to re-answer the question. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep or feed my lamb. Jesus is pretty much saying to Peter, Peter, do you see the way I had compassion on you? Peter, do you see the way I understood the struggles that you have and I gave you a chance? Now go and do the same thing with others. And that's what mentorship is. Jesus taught Peter a message, but he literally practiced the message. Uh, learning, he, it was like learning in the, it was learning on the go, hands-on learning. It was hands-on training. And so I think mentorship is what kept Peter in it. Peter would have left. Peter was so disappointed in himself. You know, like I said, he was almost on the verge of suicide. And Jesus, mm. you know, he saw that Peter messed up. He didn't excuse Peter's mistake. Like, oh, it's all right. Keep making that mistake. No. But he was like, listen, things happen, but we're going to work on this. And I'm going to work with you. And so Jesus works with Peter and helps Peter. And this is what keeps Peter in the church. Mentorship is the difference between some young people staying in the faith and leaving the faith. It's, it's that important. And I think with mentorship, it's important to be balanced, to hold young people to a high standard, you know, but also at the same time, know that, you know, it's not so easy. It's not so easy. And to not give up on them when they make mistakes and to know that there's hope and God will work with them. And, you know, so I think mentorship is, is what we need. Mentorship is, a, I think mentorship is more effective than sermons. Because um, mm. mentorship is hands-on. Yes. It's, it's hands-on, and Jesus was a mentor. And sometimes you have to accept that. Not everybody you mentor will respond. 
Judas has Jesus. Jesus was the best pastor, teacher, preacher. Judas couldn't have gotten closer to anybody else that would be better than Jesus. And Judas still dropped the ball on his own. So, you know, I think sometimes we do have a savior complex too. We can't save everybody. You know, wow. if, if Jesus, who was the greatest of all time, and you look at Judas and Judas still couldn't get his act together, you know, there's going to be some people, no matter what, you can give them every resource, everything that they need, and they're going to make their own decisions on their own. You know, you can't, you know, it's not much we can do about that. But at least they can't, we can't say the opportunity wasn't there. You know, the rest of the disciples did respond. You know, they did respond properly. And I think that's a big difference, you know, and mentorship can't do it, it, It's conversation, but it's also practicing what you preach. And it's also listening at the same time to what the young people are dealing with, um, listening to them, hearing them out. And I think it's also giving them things to do and being there with them and supporting them, you know, and it's easier said than done. Like someone like, you know, is busy and has a lot, you know, you have a family, it's hard to find time to mentor people, you know, it's not Mm -hmm. always easy. But if we can try to find ways, like you said earlier, to be intentional about it, yes. you know, start small, start small. You know, I don't think we can go from zero to 100. Maybe you do have to start small at once a month, something, a mentor thing. If that seems to work, okay, now we can up it up to twice a month, you know. Um, if that works, then maybe once a week, you know. But I definitely think mentorship is incredibly effective. And biblically, Jesus is an amazing example of, of mentorship. Again, Paul, like we said, was a great example of mentorship for, right. uh, um, yeah, for um, Timothy, you know, and other guys. So I think mentorship is huge. And, you know, you, you see a domino effect. Jesus taught his people who taught people who taught people and 2,000 years later. So, you know, mentorship is, is everything. And like I said, an example of my father, my father, he said, if he didn't have, if he didn't have that mentor after God, he said he wouldn't remain in the church. Now, the fact that my father stayed in the church, you know, he met my mother in the church. You know, my me and my siblings were here now. We're serving, you know, serving God. It's just like wow, like so mentorship. The effect of it goes beyond. Well, we have, there's a Jewish proverb that says, when you teach your son, you're automatically teaching your son's son. So the things that your father, the, yeah, that's, you know, it's what it is, you know, like the things that you might learn from your father or whoever before your child is even born, literally, you're going to take those things without even knowing it. Then you have your child and like, oh man, I'm just using some of the things that I learned. Now, it might not be tit for tat. There's some things that you might do differently than what you were taught, but from the, in, in a general sense, you know, what you were taught to an extent automatically goes down to your child. So... It just shows you that mentorship is not just for one generation. I mean, this thing goes, it goes down lines and lines and lines. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we can say enough about mentorship. Wow, bro, that's, whew, that, well, that was, that was words of encouragement. That was proof positive of the power of mentorship. I mean, you, you said it all there. I mean, the fact, a, a good example, I think, is. The reason why we have um, the laying on of hands when we ordain elders is 
in the sense of how Jesus laid on the hands to the disciples and the disciples laid hand on hands to like Stephen and, and the deacons. Mm -hmm. And if this mm -hmm. was done correctly and we can tie, we can use that as a, a sense of like a genealogy of laying on hands and bring it all yeah. the way back to Jesus. So yeah. it, it, it's, it's so profound how powerful it can be. And I love how you said, you basically kind of said that mentorship is one of the reasons i won't say the only reason but one of the reasons that you are birthed and around and just, yeah <laughs> it, 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 it's just great and so let me i just want to say this is just yeah we should just be intentional and just let that opportunity happen to have conversations and listen and uh just love each other I think that's what yeah, we that's that's what heaven's gonna be is us hanging yeah. out with each other and hanging out with Jesus. So let's yeah. start now. Let's stop being yeah. clicky and afraid to hang out with people in our own church. Let's Definitely, start hanging yeah. out with it, hanging out and starting, st starting small. Not be afraid that just because this person's in a different generation that I can't have a conversation with them. You know. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, brother. I thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we'll continue to pray for you and your ministry as you continue to preach all over. Man, you're everywhere, man. Um, so it, it's a blessing to hear. It's a blessing to hear from you. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you, too. And I'm praying for you as well that God will continue to um, grow your ministry and that uh, bless your family as well. And Definitely, um, the work that you're doing is definitely is definitely not in vain. People are learning. And, and in a way, it is mentorship. Indirectly, directly, or however you want to say, people are picking up and learning from so many other people, you know? That's right. That's right. God bless. God bless you as well.